Okay, uh, so we're talking about effective prayer. This is part of the um, series on praying naturally, I think it is, or praying supernaturally, depending on which uh, way you want to look, look at it. So I'm talking on effective prayer this morning. It seems to me that when we pray, the one thing we want is to get our prayers answered. Is that right? Now, some of us, uh, you know, might be holier than thou and say, oh, no, it's just, I just want the will of God. And that's true for all of us, of course. We'll look at that a bit later. But for most of us, it's, you know, I'm praying, God, and I'd like you to answer my prayer. And let's not be around the bush with that. Now, I've been praying for 50 years. I prayed virtually as soon as I got saved. But I wouldn't want anyone getting the impression that I always get my prayers answered. Or that I don't struggle, just as the rest of you do, with, with prayer. We all struggle. And I wouldn't want you getting the impression that there's some kind of secret formula that if you adapt this formula, you'll always get the answer to your prayers. It just doesn't work like that. God's not a slot machine. He's not a computer that you program. He's God. He's a person. And he does things according to his will. And he's considerably bigger than we are, so we just have to accept that. A bit like the lighthouse joke that Martin just told. You know, there are some things that uh, you just have to accept are there. So, but we, there are things that the Bible talks about that can improve our prayer life and make us more effective. And I'm going to run through these in order. They all start with a P. Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? Eh? So here we go. Just quickly run through them. Five words. Pray. Prepare. Persevere. Passion. And piety. We go to James 5.13. I'll turn it up in my Bible, I think. Um, Sometimes it's good to have a Bible with you. You can't always rely that there's going to be a PowerPoint. I've done it today because I'm covering quite a lot of Scripture. Um, But sometimes... There may not be a PowerPoint, so make sure you've got Bibles or the electronic equivalent thereof. Okay, personally, I prefer a proper Bible. So James 5.13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, you would think this would be ridiculously obvious, wouldn't you? Some of you will be thinking, I don't know why he's doing this, first of all. It seems to me to be self-evident this that to be effective in prayer you should pray and it is self-evident so why therefore do we keep missing it why is it therefore that when things happen or we get in trouble that often our first recourse is not prayer it's to get on the phone to somebody else it's to ring the doctor or, or whatever. Now, of course, there are times when you've just got to get on and do something. You know, if somebody's collapsed with a heart attack, you haven't got time to stop and pray. You need to ring 999. But as you do it, immediately afterwards, you need to be in prayer straight away. So it's so simple, and yet we can easily miss it. We can easily just overlook it. And what? It's because your prayer life is not as sparkling as it ought to be. So two things here. This is like a handbook to what you do. This is Jesus, James the Apostle saying, here's what you do in certain circumstances. Are you in trouble or afflicted might be a better word. Are you afflicted? Then pray. Hallelujah. Are you afflicted? 
Then moan, no. Then complain, no. Okay, no, pray. And then if you're happy, sing praises. These two things, and praises begins with a P as well. I, you know, it's there in the scripture. These two things, if we apply them during the day, will really invigorate our relationship with God. We'll be in communion with God. And it keeps us in the spirit. So we don't get out of the spirit. We're constantly walking in the spirit. So the first step to effective prayer then is praying. Number two, we'll move on to. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. The second word is prepare. To prepare. Now you'll notice that he's talking about, if all of course, the elders. Okay, because they're just sitting around on settees all day long, just waiting for your call, of course. No, of course not. They're, they're busy people. This should be the big guns. This should be when we're really in a lot of trouble and we've tried other things first, but we can't break through. Then you can call the elders. Before you think about calling the elders, maybe you should call other people, your friends or people you respect in the church. Say, can, you, can you pray for me? This is, this is how we help each other. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Notice this. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So there's a connection here that the scripture makes between sickness and sin. That is not to say that if someone's sick, they have automatically sinned. That you can just conclude, oh, they must have sinned. Just like the uh, disciples said to Jesus, who has sinned, this man or his parents? It, you just can't do that. But we have to allow for the possibility that there is sin. For the possibility that things have gone awry in our lives. And when I say prepare, you see, this is what I mean, is that before we really are, are dealing with something in prayer, we need to think about the state of our lives. Am I, am I living wrongly? Have I got a bad attitude towards someone? It, you know, if you might have a bad neighbor or ever. But what God might actually want to do is to deal with your heart. And that's why I'm saying prepare. Because the reason in a situation like that, for example, you may not be getting your prayers answered is because your heart's not right or my heart's not right. And we have to be willing to sometimes bear our hearts to other people. Just as it says here, um, if you sin, it will be forgiven. I'm going to go on to the next verse uh, in uh, a second. That's, let's just drop onto this verse. Uh, that's where I'm at, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. And that. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So there's certainly times in our lives, if we're wrestling with something in prayer, we need to get together with a brother or sister that we trust and we need to say, look, I want to pray about this and I want you to 
to work with me if there's something in my life that's, that's blocking, that's holding me up. And if they are spiritually mature, they will lead you in a way that deals with whatever is may be going on in your heart. Because someone said, you pray to change things, God wants you to pray to change you. And that's so often true. It's about our dealings with God. And so often our attitudes aren't right and we have to get them to make progress in prayer. So that's prepare. I'm going to, the first three are two, three, quite quick, but then I'll slow down a little bit. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, we're going to go back to this scripture in a minute, but that's by way of introduction to this little word, persevere. If ever there was a word we need in prayer, it surely has to be this one, doesn't it? To persevere. Oh, I'm sick. Have you tried praying about it? Yes, didn't work. So I stopped. <laughs> that happens, doesn't it? Yeah, it happens. Oh, well, I, I did that. It didn't work. I tried that. Didn't work, you know. Like taking a pill. I took that pill. Didn't work. So I've, I've given up completely. We need to think about this. Why does the apostle introduce Elijah at this point? We need to go and have a look at Elijah just briefly in 1 Kings 17 and 18, chapter 17 and 18. We read about uh, Elijah's dealings with Ahab and Jezebel and what was going on in the land of Israel. Now, in the lately demonic, evil, idolatrous worship of a god named Baal, and Elijah was struggling with this, and Ahab, who had married Jezebel, bad choice there, and the whole land was, was really in trouble. And God sets about dealing with this. And part of that is, is here. So we pick up the story in verse 1 of 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's a bad translation actually, whom I serve. Should better be translated before whom I serve. Stand. And there's a really important reason for that, but I haven't got time to go into it. So, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's fairly powerful, isn't it? Yeah, you like to have that kind of power? Well, then you just have to accept being chased around the houses by Jezebel and threatened with death and various other things. So, for three and a half years, there was a drought on the land at Elijah's word and he prayed into this this wasn't just this wasn't just oh yeah God said it to me so here we go there's this textual evidence that Elijah was praying about this then after three and a half years we get this this is now we've leapt onto 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 1 after a long time in the third year the word of the Lord came to Elijah go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain 
on the land. So the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. I'm bringing this to an end. I'm going to send rain. So Elijah says, thanks very much. Gets his beach mat out. Gets a, a martini and settles down and waits for rain. Gets his brolly ready and all the rest of it. Does he do that actually? No, he doesn't. Here we go. Same chapter. What's going on? Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there's the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. It wasn't because he had a headache, always feeling dizzy. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Even though the word of the Lord had come to Elijah and God had said, I'm going to send rain. You'll notice it doesn't happen just automatically. Elijah has to pray seven times. Something's got to be worked through here. And Elijah's called to it. He's called to work things through. This is about persevering. You see, sometimes we read a passage and it happens. might read a verse, you know, it's all going to be fine. But you have to work through it. You have to bring it into being in your prayers. God wanted, this was the will of God, but God wanted Elijah involved with the working out of his will. And so he had to pray. And the apostle is pointing something out here in the book of James. He's saying he's just like us. He's just like you. He's not some superman. He's just like us. He has all the problems that we might find. He gets depressed. He gets angry. He gets confused. There's some cowardice at work. He runs away. He, he, he exults when things go right. And he feels bad when things go wrong. He's just like you. He's just like me. That's what the apostle is pointing out here. He's just like us. And yet, God used him mightily and powerfully. But he had to pray seven times. So we have to persevere. One more scripture on this, and you'll all know this, I'm sure. Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And in the NASV, and I like this, that's a New American Standard Version. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Because we do. If we've been praying for something for years and we haven't received what we're praying for, it's all too easy to lose heart and give up. Some people have been praying for friends and family to be saved for absolutely donkey's years. And it hasn't happened yet. But don't give up. Don't give up. It's said about the Old Testament saints that they believed in the promises even though they didn't see the fulfillment of them. We have to be prepared sometimes that some of our prayers may not get answered till we're in the grave. Because... Unlike us, God has an eternal perspective. 
We have a temporal perspective. When we pray, if we don't get the answer in the next 10 minutes, we get a bit fed up. You know, I don't know what you're doing up there, God. Are you busy? What's up? The line's clogged? You're not hearing me? What's going on? And we, we live in a day now of, of immediacy, don't we? You know, oh, I wonder what the weather is. Get the phone, get the phone out. Instant. Uh, you know, I wonder what's going on. Oh, let's just check TikTok out, see which idiot's talking on there today. You know, all this kind of stuff. It's all immediate. Instant food, instant this, you know, so we expect it. Hundreds of years ago, if you wanted a meal, it would have taken you ages. You'd have had to go out and kill the animal and then skin it and then gut it and chop it into pieces. You know, you might need to let the meat hang for a little while before finally you could stick it in the frying pan and cook it up. Getting a meal was no quick thing. Age for us. But Jesus is saying, look, don't give up. Don't lose heart. God's timetable is not the same as ours. It's just not. And sometimes he deliberately allows us to go on for a while to see what our faith is like. What's your faith like? Is it still hot and strong? Are you still trusting me? We have to, we have to really get a hold of that. So you will certainly not be effective in prayer if you are unable to persevere in prayer. And I just would pose this question to you hypothetically. Is there something in your life that you've been praying about on and off, but now you've kind of given up? Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep at it. So next word, because I must move on. Time is moving on. Passion. Passion. And we go back to verse 16 of James 5. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is all translations. Very strong is a working supplication of a righteous man. That's Young's literal translation. And it is by far the most accurate to the Greek. By far the most accurate. And remember, Elijah's a man just like us. Experienced all the things that we did. And yet... While he's talking about Elijah, he's talking about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Now, I'm not, uh, there's a fellow called Barnes, and I don't want to read all of this out, I don't think. Um, but he says this, the word effectual is not the most happy translation here, since it seems to do little more than state a truism, that a prayer which is effectual is availing. That is, that it is effectual. And it's true when you read that, and I've often thought that, well, it's just kind of saying what's obvious here. The Greek word would be better rendered by the word energetic, which it's derived from. The word properly refers to that which has power, which in its own nature is fitted to produce an effect. This is the kind of prayer referred to here. It's not listless, indifferent, cold, lifeless, as if there were no vitality in it or power, but that which is adapted to be efficient, earnest, sincere, hearty, and persevering. That is fervent prayer. Effective, fervent prayer. It's got passion in it. Now, you may have been to many prayer meetings, and I would suggest, like me, you will have found a lot of them not really big on passion. Is that true? You're all looking at me blankly. I, may I suggest humbly that that uh, is true. It's not the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about a prayer meeting, passion. And we Brits, we're definitely 
um, not good at this, are we? You know, Brits are not known for passion, generally, unless it's about football. But, you know, we, 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 we suffer here. We, we kind of don't uh, do it, don't go over the top. You know, careful, don't, don't get carried away here. You know, you know the Brits like that. Don't, don't get carried away. Stiff up a lip, I say, you know, what, all this sort of stuff. But this is prayer that's passionate. And it comes, it's talking here. The word in Greek means being energized, being motivated by something that is bigger than yourself. It's like a power comes on you. And of course, it's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit moving through us and stirring up within us passion, stirring up within us that which motivates us. It's a pity that some of us don't get as motivated in prayer as some of us do at football matches. We think about the passion of the Christ. Let's have a look at this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, I'm going to go straight to the Kenneth Wies translation. He's a, he's, a, he's a Greek expert. Who in the days of his flesh offered up special definite petitions for that which he needed and supplications, doing this with strong cryings and tears to the one who was able to save him out from within death was heard on account of his godly fear. That's a much better translation of the Greek because it's not to be saved from death, it's to be saved out from death. Jesus knew he had to die. He knew he had to die. But look at this. You see, you don't really get, you do get in the, you do get in the Gospels accounts of Jesus praying. But what you don't get is this, loud cries and tears. Here we need whoever wrote the epistle to the Hebrews to fill us in on this. How do we know this? Well, obviously, some of the disciples must have overheard him and and reported this to whoever wrote Hebrews, could be Paul, could be Apollos, we don't know, with loud cries and tears. Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. This is the Son of God. This is the Holy Son of God praying with loud cries and tears. And what you think you're going to get away without that? We think we can get away without that. We think we can sit and pray in a cold, lifeless way and be heard when the Son of God himself knelt before his Father and cried out in passion because of what he was going to do? Absolutely not. We cannot get away with that. We know he prayed many, many times. One thing while I'm, while I'm passing this, definite petitions. Here's another word I was going to put in there, but I left out because of time. When you're paying precision, be precise. What is it exactly you wanting from God? You remember Jesus said that to someone, didn't he? He said, what is it you want? Jesus, in fact, he said it more than once, I think. What is it you want? So don't burble and babble and mumble and, and kind of lose yourself in your own prayers, you know. And, because sometimes I do that. I'm sitting and I'm going on at God for quite a while. And at the end of it, I'm thinking, what is it I really want out of that? What do I want God to do for me? Be precise. Tell them exactly what you need. Prayers and supplications. Um, 
is a little thing. I just think I've got time for this. The ancient Greek word for supplications is the word hikateria. Now, what the ancient Greeks used to do when they were going up before their gods was they would get an olive branch and they would wrap wool around it and then they would wave it before their god. They would march along waving this waving this before their God in supplications. And here's the word that is used here. Think about it, because where is Jesus praying this? And we'll come on to this sec. He's praying it in the garden of which is full of olive trees. It's, this is the olive grove. And he is the Lamb of God. What does a lamb have on it? Whoa. Exactly. Here's a little link. You see, all through the scripture, there are little gems like this that are dropped in all over the place that you never, you never get unless you really study it. You really don't get it. So we know he cried out. And the Greek word, it's uh, an onomatopoeic word. Let me just explain that in case some of you don't know it. An onomatopoeic word is a word that sounds like the sound it's trying to convey. For example, pop. Boom, squelch. And the word in Greek is the same. It's onomatopoeic. And it, it, when you say it, it sounds like a cry. And this, this word describes a crying that is wrenched out. It's, not, it, it's, it's, it's a cry that you might make if you twist your ankle. It comes out of the deepest place of your being. It's it's visceral. It's visceral. Really, absolutely in there. With Luke 22. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I've got to, I always, this is visceral stuff. This is a condition, I've got to, I always, I've got to get it right. Hematidrosis, I think it is. Yeah, hematidrosis. Let me just look on my notes, make sure I am saying that right. Hematidrosis. Yeah, hematidrosis. What happens is that when someone comes under intense pain, whether it's in the emotions or physically, the capillaries surrounding the sweat glands burst. And out of the sweat glands comes forth sweat and blood. And this is what was happening to Jesus. On his forehead, this was, he was sweating what looked like drops of blood. They were falling upon the ground. You might remember that one of the things that came on Adam, when Adam fell and sinned, the Lord said to him, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. By the sweat of your brow. That's the curse. Here, Jesus is sweating. The second Adam, the one who is redeeming us, he's sweating, he's sweating blood upon the ground. This is greater than the curse on Adam. It broke the curse on Adam. 
He suffered for us. Perfect saviour. Perfectly fulfilling it. Boy, I wish I'd got a couple of hours to really talk about this, I tell you. But it's absolutely a, a tremendous thing. See, here in the garden, Jesus is struggling with the concept that he's going to be separated from his father. That he's going to bear the sin of the world. That he's going to be made sin for us, as it says in Corinthians. And he is struggling. There's a tremendous battle going on within him. A battle so bad that an angel has to come and strengthen him for this. This is the agony. You remember it says in Hebrews, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Remember that? This is what it's talking about. It's talking about the garden experience. It's talking where Jesus was struggling here. And he resisted. He was resisting to the shedding of blood. This is visceral stuff. Now, of course, he's the saviour. He's unique. So, you know, this isn't about us. This, this is about him. And to underline this, in the Greek, you see, you have to look at the Greek sometimes. And it's a pain, but you just have to put the work in. There are four words that are only used in this verse. They're not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Agonia, ectenesteron, hydras, and thrombos in the Greek. That's agony, more earnestly, sweat, and drop. They're only found here. Why are they only found here? Because the Holy Spirit is drawing attention to it to mark this passage that we get the importance of what is going on here. Now, don't get it. This is the, it's the cross that saved us, not the garden. But if there hadn't have been the garden, there wouldn't have been any cross. Jesus had to be tested in the garden before the cross. Okay, so this is, this is raw. And we're not good with raw emotion, are we? You know, we are not good with raw emotion. If somebody collapses in tears or screams or something like that, everybody gets nervous. We, did, we struggle with it. But I, I honestly believe this with all my heart, that if the church doesn't get into raw emotion sometimes, we're not going to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You just have to get used to the fact that God is so real and that our feelings need to be real sometimes. And we need to let those out. We need to deal with reality. Anyway, I mustn't go off. So, we're nearly there. A final word for this morning. Oh, yeah, that's just to make sure. I'll, I'll skip over that. Cause I, I just, I, and that. Um, and that. Oh, I'm at the end already. Where's piety? I'm looking for piety. It isn't there. It's disappeared. Okay, it's disappeared. All right. No worries. Uh, okay. The next word then is piety. That's the next word I want to look at. Piety. I will get there in the end. I haven't got time for that. Okay. There it is. There it is. Thank you. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. That's what it says in the New American Standard Version. Now, piety is not a word that we, that we hear much of these days. It's kind of a bit of an old-fashioned word. But if you look it up in the dictionary, what it means is it means uh, godly fear. The dictionary says something about... Um, a reverence for God or devout fulfillment of religious obligations. 
However, the, the Greek is a bit stronger than that. And W. Vine says that the word eulabia, which is piety, that's what's translated here, signifies caution, reverence, godly fear, and in general, apprehension, but especially holy fear. That mingled fear and love which combined constitute the piety of man towards God. The Old Testament places its emphasis on the fear, the New Testament on the love, because don't forget the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, so it uses Greek words, so it'll use the word eulabia. Though there was love in the fear of God's saints then, as there must be fear in their love now. So what is it saying? It's saying that Jesus was completely submitted to God. He completely was given over to his father. And he reverenced his father. He reverenced his father. That that enabled him to endure the cross. There was a tremendous battle in the garden. When the battle was over, Jesus rose and said, let us go. His mind was set, his heart was resolved, his face like flint, let us go. Go and face the cross, go and endure, go and suffer, go and be utterly cast on God, go and be triumphant. Jesus' obedience was proved in his suffering. You remember the scripture in Hebrews, I will come to a close very shortly, where it says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And some people struggle with this. It does not mean that Jesus had some rebellion in him that had to be got out. It does not mean that he struggled with the concept of obedience. That somehow, you know, he, he, he kind of like, well, should I as almighty God, should I be obedient? No, 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 no. It means that his obedience was utterly demonstrated in the garden. You see, obedience is latent until it's tested. For example... If you say to your child, uh, I'm going to leave a chocolate or I'm going to leave a chocolate cake on the table here and I don't want you to touch it. You won't touch it, will you? No, mommy. And then you go out, okay? See, although the child has said, no, I won't touch it, that obedience is latent. But when you get back home and the child has not touched that, he's passed the test, the obedience is demonstrated, the obedience now is worked out, it becomes apparent. And that's why it says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The latent obedience, the obedience that was always in his will and always in his heart was now manifest because he endured the garden and he got through it and he did it all right. And it means that Satan cannot raise an, a finger of accusation against him. He cannot accuse him at all and say, well, you know, you say that your son is the second Adam. Well, we know Adam disobeyed. Well, we don't know that your son would have done the same if it had been put through the ringer. How do we know that Jesus would have obeyed and God the Father can say to him, you see the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan? You see the way that he bore this suffering and he obeyed me to the full. The obedience is demonstrated. End of story. Shut up, Satan, and pipe down. So, finally, we have to have that within us, that obedience. If we're going to be effective in prayer, we have to have piety. We have to be ones who say at the end of the day, your will be done. Your will be done. Because if I'm praying, I'm praying for the will of God. 
You know, you might be praying for a chocolate cake, but is it the will of God? See, unless we submit it to him, holy. Now, I don't, I've never liked the form of praying where uh, people tag on the end of their prayers, if it be thy will. I've always felt kind of, it just never sits right with me, you know. It's kind of like, look, if you don't believe it's not the will of God, why do everything? Yeah. And that, that's just saying something, you know, God, you know everything. But our hearts have got to register. That, that's just saying something. But reality, the reality of the heart is, are we submitted to God? Are we submitted to God? Is his will the most important thing in our lives? So above all, piety is knowing that above everything, God's will must be done. Now, I want to finish by stressing this again, just at the end, as I did at the beginning. You can do all these things and still not get your prayers answered. You can be the most righteous, upright person and, and not get your prayer answered. And then you can see some, somebody come along and you know they've been living a bad life and they've been out of fellowship for absolutely ages. You know, they've just tipped up in church. They've been away from church for 15 years, you know, mixing it up with harlots and getting drunk. And they pray and they get their prayers answered. Why? Because God is God. God is God. And that is all you can say. But... If we adapt these five things, I think it will make our prayers much more effective. God bless you. Thank you for listening.